this week. If you would, take your copy of God's Word and open to uh, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And we're continuing in our study of Christ in you, looking at uh, this letter verse by verse, line by line, uh, that, that Paul writes to the church in Colossae that centers around the relationship between an individual who believes in Christ and Christ. What does it mean, Christ in you? And today, as we look at it, we're going to focus on this phrase and this wonderful song that's uh, fairly new to the church, although it's been around, I think, since 2001 or five, somewhere around there, in Christ alone. Um, I, I had wanted to sing that today, but... Uh, I was I was in doctoral work all week and it was a crazy week and uh, I got the the list of songs too late and then I was like you know what you all know the song we'll sing it another time but in Christ alone which is a a short phrase that summarizes the gospel and our belief and our our faith in the gospel that it is in Jesus alone that we we find salvation that we find all things and in fact that's the argument that Paul writes today as we look at this passage from, uh, from Colossians chapter 2. Now, who here has ever uh, been past counterfeit money? Not you made it, but like you've received it. Has anyone ever received counterfeit money? If, if you did and you, you got caught with it, you took it, it probably didn't look like, like Monopoly money, right? Like, Counterfeiters don't do that. They don't say, okay, here's your change and hand you Monopoly money because you would spot it right away and go, no, that's, that's fake. That's, that's wrong. Or perhaps as I was looking at fake money, I found this jewel, right? A, a grumpy cat $100 bill. Counterfeiters don't do that. What they do is something more like this. One of those is fake. It's not obvious, is it? All right, let's, let's take a poll, okay? Who says the top one is the fake one? Who says the bottom one's the fake one? Look at all the Baptists I just had raise their hand in church. It's the bottom one, and like you've got to get really close on it, and you start to see nuances. But we all know that counterfeit money is a danger uh, we hear about it in the news that um, certain, certain regimes, certain countries try to destabilize the American economy and they, they actually infuse counterfeit funds into the American economy. It's not just, it's not just people here trying to uh, print their own money, but there's actually uh, all kinds of different things at play in it. And if you were to ever receive one of those bills and you were to take it to the bank... Or they were, you take it to the gas station, right? They all, they marked the pin. Like, I went someplace, and they were marking $1 bills with the pin. Like, I mean, it was, it was serious. Like, everything that came in, they were checking to see if it was the real thing or if it was counterfeit. If you take a counterfeit bill to the bank, guess what? They don't give you half the value. <laughs> they, don't, they don't say, oh, I'm sorry, you got a bad one. Here's a real one. You're left empty-handed, and you probably got to answer some questions. How much more serious is spiritual counterfeiters? False teachers that proclaim things that 
by intention seek to lead those who believe in God or those who don't know about God. It seeks to lead them astray into falsehood. Does that exist? It does. We could access it and find it very, very uh, quickly, very easily, in fact, in today's culture and the internet age and radio and television. Do we have the discernment? Do we, do we know? And, and here's the thing that I want you to see from this text today that Paul is trying to make obvious to the, the church at Colossae that's dealing with all kinds of false teaching. And it's this. False teaching doesn't look like angry cat $100 bills. It looks like the real thing, the way that they present it. It's not as obvious as you might think that it is. Satan is hard at work to try to deceive the church. He is the master counterfeiter. He works through those and those religious systems that sometimes promote good works, family values. They advocate a type of Christianity, a type of morality. And it might look appealing on the surface. It's deceptive by nature. But so often... What we see, in, as Paul writes to Colossae, is true today. It's not Christ-centered. It is an ends to a means to itself, a religious system to participate in and to belong to and to act in that will promise you salvation when the Bible says, in Christ alone is found grace. In Christ alone is found life. In Christ alone do we believe. Amen? That's an amen moment right there. And so today as we look at this text, I want you to to think about this, this contention that we see uh, in the text but also in life between uh, a, a false religious belief and hope and system and that which would say Jesus is all you need. Everything is found centered in Christ, in Christ alone. Look with me. At our, at our text today. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to look today specifically at verses 8 through 12. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 12. Let me read God's Word. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity bodily dwells, and you have been filled in Him who is the head and the rule and all authority. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank You for Your love and Your grace. We thank You for Jesus Christ. I pray today that You would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds. I pray, Father, that today 
if we find ourselves influenced and swayed by a, a, a system of a religious adherence that you would break those walls for us that we might look to Jesus Christ alone as our salvation. I pray, Father, that today you would help build a firm foundation in all of us that we would trust in Christ alone. That you would help us to fight this pull that we have towards religiosity and, and earning our salvation and being good enough that we might trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. Oh, Father, may your words come through mine today. May your truth come through that which I say. And Father, would you not only allow us to hear, but transform us that we might obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you remember, we've been looking through this section of Colossians. It's been on this subject of false teaching in large part because the, the, the church at Colossae was dealing with these teachers, and we don't know exactly what they were teaching about. We, we have some inferences of some things, and we know in the region some of the, the teachers and more specifically what the false teachers were saying it seems because of Paul's argument that one of the issues at hand was circumcision, which was a, a common issue in the early church. You got saved. The Jewish background was if you were going to be one of God's people in covenant with God, you had to be circumcised. In the New Testament, there is this tension with we still we want to show that we trust God. How do we do that? And false teachers would come and say, if you haven't done that, then you're not a true Christian. And maybe you've met somebody like that, gone to a church that said, you believed in Jesus, good, I'm glad for that, you've received Him as your Savior, all right, how do you show me that you have? If you're really a believer, then you must do this. I've been to churches where they would judge your Christianity based on the length of your hair, if you're a woman, whether you wore a dress or wore pants. I've seen all kinds of religious rules and religious tests, and I'm sure you have probably seen more than me. I've seen more people that are concerned about the outside of the cup than the inside of the cup. To use an analogy, as Jesus said. But salvation, coming to Jesus Christ, being forgiven by Him, is found in faith alone in Jesus, not by external things. There's two main points here that I want us to see from this text. The first point is this. Christless religion is empty and dangerous. A Christless religion is empty and dangerous. A, a, a religiosity, a, a Christianity without Christ as the sinner. And I know you say, that sounds funny. And it should sound funny to us. 
But there are groups that talk about Jesus, but He is not the focus of what's happening. He's merely the gateway so that now you can start improving yourself by doing certain things. It comes in all sorts of forms. I love church history. I love church history because it helps us. Understanding history helps us from repeating the dangers that we see in it. I had one professor, and he said, there's no new heresies. They just have different names. And it's true as you look through church history. Look at Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 8 is very interesting. This text that we're going to look at is very interesting linguistically, um, le- le- the, the, lexi- the lexical nature of it. In verse 8, we have the only use of this word philosophy in the, in the New Testament, in the Greek. And, and Paul's likely writing and using the false teacher's word about that which they teach. So the idea is, yes, Paul preaches this gospel, but let me share with you true philosophy. And there was this contention. We know that Paul writes about it in many ways, that, that Paul was, 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 was said of these false teachers that what he preached was incomplete, that it wasn't the full gospel, that it was missing things, that it was just too simple to be true. Trust in Jesus and be saved, that's it? Have you read the Old Testament? Have you seen the law? No, we've got to do more. But salvation is in Christ alone. It's through faith alone. And so Paul talks about this philosophy, this teaching, and it, it sounds impressive, and it, it promises a lot. And the, the important thing to remember is that this philosophy that the, that the false teachers come at you with and came at the church at Colossae with, this teaching, this philosophy, these elementary principles of the world, they're not like the monopoly money. It seeks to to pull you away. It sounds convincing. It might be well-argumented. They might have some kind of historical backing that they're trying to promote and say. There's been a a big shift in the last few years in false teaching within the church. Forty, fifty years ago, The argument was false teachers in the church saying, we don't need that part of the Bible. Just, just, just cut that part out, right? Are you with me? Many of you have lived through this transition. Well, that's, that, that's, that's, that's not really there. There's a group called the Jesus Seminar. They began actually in the 80s, but they carried on this tradition. And, and they get together and they have a meeting and they have um, like these marbles, like a blue marble and a white marble. They, they have this color and, and they basically sit down and they, they, they look over um, evidence and they vote to say, did Jesus really say that? And they, they put out 
a book. I ordered it, and it didn't come in time, I guess, this week, because I, I just wanted to hold it up here. But there's a, a Bible that they put out. And by their own uh, attesting, they say that 18% of the sayings of Scripture and 16% of the deeds of Jesus are authentic. Have you ever heard of the Thomas Jefferson Bible? And Thomas Jefferson had the same kind of approach to Scripture. He actually was bold enough to take an exacto knife and he would cut out the passages that he didn't think, eh, I don't like that one. I don't think Jesus would have said that. And so that's one way that false teachers, they, they, they come and they say, nah, it's just not right. You, you shouldn't do that. That's, that shouldn't be there. I, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, that's not that deceptive. <laughs> for me, it's like, oh, wait a minute. That's the Word of God, right? But there's a new kind of deception that you're going to run into, and that is, a way where they try to argue the Bible says something that it doesn't clearly seem to say. And so we see this with lots of area. One in particular that we see right now is on the issue of homosexuality. And so in the last 10 years, there have been a number of books written to say that which the Bible seems to make very clear that as you read it, you would go, no, it says this is bad. They begin philosophical nuancing to try to develop an argument to where it'd say, that's not really what it's talking about. The Bible isn't, again, this is their argument, please hear me. If you're on the radio and you just listened, okay, let me phrase this. They would say that the the Bible isn't saying that homosexuality is wrong, it's saying that, that only that, that unmonogamous homosexuality is wrong. Like, that's where they get to. Again, by looking more like a counterfeit bill than monopoly money. Are you with me? I, I want you to see this. I want you to, to think about this. If something doesn't sniff right, we need to stop and we need to think about it. It's not that you're not going to be teachable. We should be teachable and have a teachable spirit and be led by the Spirit and, and able to desire to know more about Scripture. But be very careful when people begin to, to, uh, to show you very clear and obvious things in Scripture and say, oh, no, it really doesn't say that. It says that, but it doesn't say that. Because that's how false teachers do it. That's what Paul's writing to say. He's writing to say, don't be, don't be taken captive by this philosophy. Don't be taken captive by these teachings. He goes on to say another set of things that will try to take you captive, another set of things that try to uh, convince you that against Christ alone for salvation, and that is a, a religious adherence. He continues on and says about the philosophy, according to the elementary principles of the world, um, we know in Galatians particularly that false teachers were emphasizing circumcision, ceremonial laws, days, months, seasons, years. If you're going to be a real Christian, 
You've got to participate in this. You've got to do this. You've got to continue this. You've got to, you've got to do this thing. Our Sunday school class looked at one of those verses this morning. In Colossae, it looks like this is the issue as well. In, in verse 11, we see um, issues having to deal with um, circumcision, the food, keeping religious festivals and, and Sabbaths and days are part of what we see in Colossians. And the point of it is, is that all of these things, all of these religious things that they did, the danger of it was that it pulled Christ from being the center of your faith and your belief and your practice to making the things that you do the center of how you follow God. Now, should we genuinely want to serve God? Yes. Should we genuinely want to uh, obey Christ? Yeah, that's, that's the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Go to all nations, make disciples. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. But you see, Jesus is the center of our desire to want to love him and to obey him and to honor him. For too many people, they've been intermixed with this idea of this religiosity and these uh, false teachings and these false churches that are out there in this very community that say, yeah, Jesus, he's, he's part of it. He's important. But just believing in him isn't going to get you there. You better do this or these or that. Have you fallen in that trap? Uh, many Christians, many evangelicals don't fall into the the systematic trap to where they would say, I, if I don't do this, then I won't be saved. Yeah, I, I've trusted in Jesus. I, I know Jesus. I, I love Jesus, but i got to do this too. Okay? A lot of times we, we have enough foundation we won't say that, but we live in a way where we think that we've got to please God more. We, we look at God like he's a, a disapproving father that we're trying to say, will you please love me? Look, look what I'm doing. Do you love me now? Will you love me more? Can I do this so you can love me more? And a lot of Christians fall in that trap. God will never love you any more than the moment that Jesus died on the cross for you. It's a deep thought. Does that mean that we shouldn't want to please him? No. But it means he's not like the father that you might have had that only showed love and affection to you when he was happy with you. God isn't like that. God's like a good father. And maybe some of you had this. Maybe some of you would say, I had a father that loved me unconditionally and I failed him and he was disappointed with me, but I knew that he loved me and he would have always done anything for me. That's the God that loves us. That's the God that we serve. And Jesus is at the center of that and he is the connection of how we receive that love, how we are forgiven. Not by the other things that you do. You don't have to do more to try to impress him. He just wants you to live in the love that He gives you. 
There's all kinds of ways that we can be deceived of spiritual deceptions that are out there, of false teachings of some of which are that are intellectual, some of which have to do with adherence and religious obedience to them. The point that Paul is making here and the, the point that I hope that you're getting from me is be careful because they're convincing. They, they come at you in a way that, again, isn't like the Monopoly money. It's not like the Angry Cat $100 bill. It's more like that one that you look at and you go, I don't know, it looks real. It kind of feels real. How do we know? We look at it according to Scripture. And one of the ways that we look at it, Paul says, is where is Jesus in this? Where is Jesus in this? This is the second point. Christ alone in our life is all that we need. In Christ alone. Paul goes back throughout this whole argument in Colossians 1 especially. Paul has gone back to Jesus over and over again. In Christ. Your salvation is in Christ. Your foundation is in Christ. In Christ. And he talks about the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1. That all things find their being in Him. He has been given in authority over all things. Everything is about Jesus. And he goes back here and he says, well, how do we know if these things are deceptive? How do we know if these things are enslaving us? How do we know if these things are not right? And the big question is asked is, where's Jesus in this? Is he at the center of it? Because he should be at the center of all things in our life. Paul makes three, uh, three comments about the sufficiency of Jesus here. The first thing is that Jesus is sufficient because He is the God-man. Look at verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. For in Him all fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, friends, we might read over that and not think a whole lot about it. But just stop for a minute. Paul just said, In Jesus, a man dwells the deity of God. There's a theological statement that that, that maybe you've heard of. I think I've said it and taught it before, but when we think about Jesus and who He is, it's important that He is the God-man. He's holy God, holy man, all at the same time. Was Jesus God? Is Jesus man? He didn't. The the Bible says that that he left his position in the Trinity to come and dwell in human form. It says that he laid aside at some point of his, his power, maybe. I don't know how all this fits. There's lots of PhD dissertations about it if you want to try to figure it out. I don't. I think the point is, is that as Jesus is laying as a baby in a manger, developing the way that humans develop, there's a sense in which to do that, to come and be born incarnate, he laid aside his divine attribute. He set it aside for a moment so that he could come to earth and develop. And one day God restores him what? It says he's given him authority over all things. But even as he's the infant in the manger, all the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. 
And at the same time, Jesus is a man. We see these pictures written from like the Renaissance era, and you can always spot Jesus in them. Why? He's glowing, right? I've, I've got a, I love woodworking. I've got a picture. Uh, I think it's hilarious. I don't know who painted it, but it's from that era. And it's got Joseph and Mary's in the corner. And here's, here's little Jesus like sawing and he's glowing. You know, it's Jesus because he's glowing. Well, here's the thing. If you lived in first century and you were out walking around and Jesus and his disciples came into town and you've heard about this group, you've heard about Jesus and you wanted to know which one was Jesus you would have had a hard time distinguishing him from the other disciples. The Bible says that he was a plain man. He looked just like the other guys. Jesus didn't levitate. Jesus didn't fly. Jesus didn't glow. He was a man. Yeah, that's why, remember when Judas betrays Jesus and he brings the high priest to, to come and arrest him? What does Judas do? What, what's, the high, what's, what's the arrangement between the high priest and Judas? How will we know which one's Jesus? Because he glows. No. <laughs> because he's the one floating. No. Judas has to go and betray him with a kiss to indicate that this is the one. And that might sound silly, but... But we got to stop sometimes and remember, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And it's something we got to wrestle with and think about. And the importance of this is that because in his deity, he is fully divine. He is fully God. But in his humanity, he is also fully man. And because of this, he is able to come and be in our place. He's able to be the second Adam. He's able to come and live a sinless and a perfect life. And as he's on the cross and, and the wrath of God is being poured out upon him, he is able to take the wrath of God, not for his sins, but for our sins. He's judged for us. He dies for us because he was a man. That's the, that's the important thing about Christmas, about the incarnation, about Jesus being born, about God, Emmanuel, God being with us. He is the God-man. And Paul writes here and says, that he's sufficient because of who he is. And friends, there's lots of teachers out there. There's lots of religions out there. There's religious systems out there that Jesus Christ is not alone, that Jesus Christ is not sufficient for your salvation because he's not the God-man. He's a special man. He's, he's a god appointed by a God, but is kind of a man. But they're not able to make the assertion that historic Orthodox Christianity in the Bible makes. That in Jesus, we see the dwelling at the same time of the fullness of God and the fullness of man come God in the flesh to redeem us, to save us. In Him alone do we trust. Amen? Second point that, that Paul writes here is that Christ is sufficient because in Him we find our completeness. We are complete in Him. We see this in verse 
10. Your text might uh, say that we've been fulfilled. In him, we're fulfilled. The idea is, is that we are completed. Paul's saying that Christ has the fullness of deity dwelling in him, and you're in him, and so you're made full. So the basis of your salvation, the, the basis of, of everything that your hope is in your uh, ability to be saved, to be made uh, right before God, to have a restored relationship in Him, to live in a way that's pleasing to Him, is found not what in you will do, not found outside of Christ, not found in some kind of an obedience, but it's found actually in Jesus. That in Him we're fulfilled, that Jesus plus anything equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Is that your hope? Is that your belief? Again, I'm not downplaying that we should be obedient. I'm not downplaying that the Holy Spirit works in our life in a sanctifying way and that as we're Christians, if we're genuinely saved and we genuinely have the fruits of the Spirit, that there should be a desire for those fruits to be made evident, that there should be a desire in us to put off sin and to put on Christ. All of these are right, but the the essence of it is is you're not putting on Christ continually in a way and, and, and acting in a way so that you earn that you could be saved. Total different philosophy in how you think about it. Is Jesus alone enough for you? We read through James last year. That passage, faith without works is dead. And we looked at it and we saw that the issue is is not that you're saved by your works but a genuine faith will have works. They're not the basis for the salvation, but they're the outworking of it. So Jesus, Paul writes here and says that Christ is sufficient alone for salvation because He is the God-man. He writes and says that He is sufficient because we're complete in Him. What else could we add to it? What, what, Jesus is enough. You can't add anything else to it. You're saved because of your trust and your faith in Him. And the third thing that he writes here is that Christ is sufficient because he gives us power over sin. Look with me, verses 11 and 12. And these are, these are more difficult verses. I'm going to try to look at them in a very simple way with you. So, so please follow along. If you have a question, write it down. Get with me sometime and we can talk over that. But I just want us to think in, in the context here and what we're looking at about how that Christ is sufficient because He gives us power over sin. Verses 11 and 12. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through the faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now, we got to stop and go back for a minute because this passage has referenced an Old Testament principle that, that we really are kind of removed from. It's not a big argument for us today like it was in that first century church, but if you remember back, um, one of the main symbolic 
things that, 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 that God gave to the uh, Old Testament to show that they were in covenant with God, that they were God's people, were that the male children were to be circumcised. The, the removal of the foreskin, it was a, it was a sign of uh, their trust and their faith and their adherence to God that they would follow and that they would do that. Now, this was an issue all throughout the early church. We read about it in the New Testament all over. Galatians has a, has a big uh, uh, part of it, of what's going on. We read in Acts, especially in Acts 15, that um, this was a, a contentious thing in the New Testament. Gentiles who, weren't, who didn't grow up in the Hebrew faith, when they come to Jesus, must the males be circumcised? And the answer in Acts 15 was no, that they don't have to be, that Jesus is enough. And this was contentious still, again, throughout the, the Gentile world and trying to reconcile uh, Old, Testament, Old Testament Judaism that, that was... Um, that Jesus had come and brought the new law. He's the, the new law giver and the new old covenant to the new covenant and this transition that had to take place. And it's hard for us sometimes because we seem really far away from that argument meaning a whole lot to us, right? But this is the argument that Paul writes and uses here. One of the main meanings of circumcision was that by the removal of flesh, a man would be pure before God. It was a, it was a symbolic meaning that you, were God's, that you were God's, that you were one of His, that you were pure before Him. The Old Testament talks about it like that in many ways, but the Old Testament also talks about the fact that there was an internal belief, that the external wasn't alone. This is what, this is what in the Old Testament they, they fought with all the time. They, they, by external things, said, I'm, God's, I'm one of God's people, but internally they were far from him. And so they would, they would try to worship at the temple, but also worship the Baals and the Asherahs. And so when you read the Old Testament, you see this, you see this by, by the sign they're God's people, but by the heart they're not. Are you with me? One of the promises of the New Testament, or the new covenant that's going to come, is that the people in the New Covenant, they all know God. They all love God. Deuteronomy talks about a circumcision, not of the flesh, but of the heart. Think back of um, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And uh, Peter gets up and he preaches about Jesus and it says that that, that the men begin to cry out, what must we do to be saved? But it says something really interesting there. It says they were all cut to the heart. Cut to the heart and crying out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and believe and trust in Jesus. And they, were, they did, and they were baptized, and 3,000 got saved that day. This, this idea, this being cut to the heart, this, this circumcision not made by hands that Paul writes. He's pointing to this. He's pointing to the fact that, that, that in Jesus, our faith in Him, what happens in our life is that we're changed on the inside, not just on the outside. 
Philosophy and rules wants to change the outside but not worry about what's going on in the inside. And so you can find individuals who are some of the most mean-spirited, angry people, unsettled, but they're doing what they think is right to serve God. They've worried about the outside of the cup, but not the inside. Jesus says, or Paul says, that if we know him, we've been cut, we've been circumcised, not with the circumcision of hands, the putting off of the flesh, but an internal circumcision of our heart, that our hearts are soft towards God, that we know him, that we love him, that Jesus is everything to us. He goes on and he, he shows this again through the symbolism of baptism, that, that when a believer is immersed in water, it symbolizes the death of Christ, that you're being identified completely by his death. That's why the mode of baptism is important. I mean, in, in this text, we have, we have the reason for baptism Baptism comes after a confession in Christ, not before as an infant, as a child. We can, we can get into all that. This is actually a very important text for that because um, it's talking about the, the, old te- the, the practice of baptizing children has to do with trying to continue the, the mark of the covenant from the Old Testament of circumcision. But here, the circumcision is said it's not a circumcision of hands of putting off of the flesh, but it's an internal circumcision of baptism. And, and we're, how do we know that we've been cut off, that we've done that, that we've had that? Well, we believe in Jesus. So that's why we would say baptism is for those who believe in Jesus, a credo baptism. And once you have believed in Jesus, the, the next step that you need to do is identify in Jesus and be baptized to show publicly on the outside what's happened on the inside. That in Christ, with Christ, you have been buried in death. But Jesus didn't stay buried, and you don't stay buried just because you've come to know Jesus. But you're raised to walk in newness of life. It's all about Him. And so that's why baptism is so essentially important, because it pictures, it doesn't save you. Now, Paul doesn't write and say, if you're not baptized, he's not writing to say that that this religious act of baptism is saving you. But he's saying it's, what happens in Jesus is symbolized in that. All this takes place because of our faith. It's all centered in Jesus. Paul writes and says here that, that um, Christ has removed the body of flesh, our sinful nature, through this spiritual circumcision. Now, how are we supposed to to think about that. When you became a Christian, did you just stop sinning? Did your desire and and the ability to sin just stop? Right? No. What's What's he saying here? What he's saying here is because of Christ. Our desires should have changed. We now have the Holy Spirit. We now have a desire to serve and to please Him. There's freedom there. But see, it's very different than saying, I'm saved because I don't sin. That's what religion says. Religion says, I'm saved because I don't do this and I do this. What Christianity says is, I'm saved because of Jesus and He's helping me. I'm struggling, but I find my hope and my salvation and and my confidence in Jesus. 
that should change our attitude towards sin. Not that we're earning our salvation, but we're seeking to please the one that has brought us salvation. There's, there's a lot here. I, I, really, I really struggled as I put this message together because I wanted to, I wanted to name names. <laughs> like I wanted to get all the cults and all the false teachers. Let's line them up. Let's put them on the board and let's show who's who. But here's the problem with that. Tomorrow they're going to change. There's going to be a new face. There's going to be a new cult. There's going to be a new group. That's what church history tells us. There's no new heresies. They just change their names. But I want you to remember as we close today, there is everything is found in Jesus. Is He your hope? Maybe you've lived and say, well, I've lived a good moral life and I've tried to please Jesus, but I haven't really loved Him. I haven't seen Him as the sinner of my faith. Today, would you be so bold as to trust in Christ, to turn away from religion. You ever heard a testimony of somebody like that? It's powerful, isn't it? They live so long in their life trying to please God by their own works to finally realize they just need to trust in Jesus. Have you trusted in Him? If you have trusted in Him today as we close, would you think about, is my life in Him? Is He is the center of everything for me? Perhaps like we've looked at today, uh, baptism is something that you say, I've trusted in Jesus. I believe in Him alone as my Savior. It's time now, it's time now to show the, on the outside what's happened on the inside. If, if you've trusted in Christ, your next step is to follow the Lord in baptism. I'd love to, to talk with you about that. We're going to give a time of invitation. Perhaps you have something that you would like to pray for, a decision that you would like to make. Perhaps you say, Pastor, I would like for you to, to pray for me about my struggle with, with trying to be religious versus trusting in Jesus alone. Perhaps you want to come and say, I'm, I'm ready to be baptized. I've trusted in Jesus. I'm, I'm ready to do this. I've put this off for a long time. We'd love to celebrate that with you. Whatever it is, would we be sensitive to Him? Would we be bold enough to stop following the elementary principles of the world, the, the vain philosophies that try to lead us astray? And would we dedicate our life to trust in Jesus alone? And pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for salvation. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you, God, that you came to dwell among earth, that you took our sin upon yourself. You didn't just show us a way to walk, but you walked the way for us. Oh Lord, my prayer as the shepherd of these people is that they would trust in you. Father, that they would seek to live for you, but they would not seek to live for you as a way to, to gain your approval, but that they would seek to live for you because they know that they have your approval because you love them so dearly. I pray now that you would be at work and move hearts. May we all respond to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.